Well, good morning. Thanks for visiting with us this morning at the, at the Crossing Church as we continue in our series on our, our mission statement, the mission of the church. And for the first two weeks, we talked about uh, how God loves us, how much God loves us, and how he wants us to love him back. And today and next week, we're going to be talking about loving people. And our scripture reference comes out of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And it goes like this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Well, growing up, I had a, I had a very good friend who was, uh, who as an infant, because of a doctor's mistake, ended up losing all the sight in his one eye and well over half the sight in his other. So from a very early age, uh, I watched him struggle and I became aware of how great a gift sight was and how for granted most people take that gift of sight. Millions of Americans and people worldwide suffer from either partial or total blindness. Now, sometimes it comes from a tragic era like my friend's experience, but more times than not, it comes because of disease uh, where very slowly the darkness begins to uh, rob them of this precious gift of sight. In the overwhelming number of cases, the circumstances which eventually take the sight of people, they happen over a long period of time. Now, physical blindness is very difficult. There's no question about it. But the Bible says that there is another blindness that is not merely difficult, but tragic. It's not the physical blindness of the eye, but the spiritual blindness of the soul, which is a malady, which doesn't merely make the task of living more daunting, but it literally keeps us from God, and if not attended to, can land us in hell. A soul blind to the love of God, the sovereign, free love of God exhibited in the provision of a Savior Jesus Christ, his son. But like the overwhelming cases of physical blindness, most spiritual blindness does not occur without warning and can be avoided altogether with proper, timely care. 
the care prescribed by Dr. John in the first epistle, which bears his name, is, uh, is not in the form of a salve or surgery or medicated cotton swabs. It's found as we learn to love our Christian brothers and sisters. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. And John seems to say that this one trait of those who are truly fellowshipping with God, those who are truly walking in the light, has an effect like a, like a pebble thrown into a lake whose ripples touch a far shore. You've done that as kids, haven't you? You buy the, the, uh, the, the shore of a lake and you, you throw that pebble in and you watch. And if it's real still, you'll see those, those waves. And all of a sudden, you watch them as far as you can see they go. It's like that. What he seems to be saying, John that is, is that success and satisfaction in the larger arena of my Christian life is directly related to whether or not I am actively seeking to love my Christian brother. Because if I don't, I'm like a man with greatly diminished vision, trying to navigate gingerly, carefully in the night, feeling his way along, uh, you know, literally waiting for the next hidden hole in the pavement to topple him over. It's a fearful way to live. Now, some of us need to undergo some eye treatment. The treatment for spiritual blindness, John says, is loving my brother. If I do, then I'll be able to see clearly enough in all other areas of my life to avoid falling and breaking my spiritual neck. He's saying that when I love my brothers and sisters... I will walk in the light and not stumble in the night. Now, as John writes to them, he's not writing something that they had never heard before about loving your brothers. They most certainly had heard this before. Verse 7 says, this old command is the message you have heard. It was an old command. So none of his readers were going to say, wow, what a concept. We've never heard anything like that before. Of course they had. John knew they had. Anyone who had heard the words of Jesus or had been schooled in the law had heard it. And and what's more, loving their brother had always been a requirement for them. Why does he reference it then as an old command? Well, you know, perhaps writing 50 years or more from the time Jesus spoke those words, John was referencing these words of Jesus's, which I I guess you could consider old, like we consider an Elvis Presley movie old, right? (laughs) Maybe that's what he meant, that it was decades old. But maybe he was thinking even further back. John said in verse 7 that this command had been introduced to them since the beginning. Since the beginning of what? The nation? In Leviticus chapter 19, near the beginning of the Old Testament, God said, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we've gone from 50 years to 3,500 years. That's pretty old. Did he mean since the beginning of their Christian life when he said, you know, from the beginning? Whatever he was referencing or referring to, they had most certainly heard it before. And yet, and yet John says that the old command, the one they had all heard before, was now new. It was a new command. That's weird. You know what? It's old and it's new. And yet, you know what? He wasn't the first one to have pointed that out. Jesus, speaking to his disciples in John chapter 13, said this. He said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So the question becomes, how can something be both old and new? Where does newness come in here? What exactly was Jesus talking about? Well, I think Jesus and John were both saying two things when they called them to this new commandment. Your daughter plays in the high school orchestra. You go to the holiday concert. You sit down. You have the program. There's her name right there. She does fine. You're very impressed. But but you're super, super impressed by one of the solo performances of a superb cellist who's already been accepted to attend Juilliard in the fall. This talented young artist on center stage entertains the crowd with a piece that accentuates the instrument's low, strong, and sweet high tones. And as you leave, your wife says to you, wasn't our Janie just great? And you say, yeah, yeah, she was good, she was good. But how about that cellist? Oh man, she was something else. A week later, someone gives you tickets to the pack Center where you hear Yo-Yo Ma perform. And you are struck with the thought that you have never really heard the instrument played before. You always thought you knew good eating, but then you visit Daniel's on East 65th Street in New York City, where Chef Eddie LaRue presides over a menu and presents a menu of classical French delights, and your taste buds are awakened in your mouth, and you, you, you never knew you had them, but there they are. And all for around $2,000 for your party of four. You've watched the local community college basketball team pass and shoot and dribble their way to the league championship. Good for them. Then you go to the Barclays Center in Brooklyn and you watch Kevin Durant play above the rim and you realize that these guys are simply not playing the same game as the college kids are playing. <laughs> See, the game became new once you watched the master play it. Something can be properly said to be new if it's raised to a completely new standard. And I think that was one way that this old commandment was to be considered new. It can be said that not until those disciples witnessed what love for others according to God's standards was, as they witnessed it on a day-by-day -day basis in the life of Jesus, did they really understand what it was all about. Not until they witnessed with their own eyes a fatigued Jesus in the heat of a day, ministering to an outcast woman, breaking all the social protocol of the day. It was not until he healed a, a desperate man on the Sabbath under the condemning eye of the religious teachers. It was not until they saw him called crazy by his own family members, deserted by his friends, hanging on a cross and whispering the words, Father, forgive them. See, it was not until then that they truly understood what a God sort of love for others was. And that was new. His life, and more particularly, his death, gave new meaning to the old law of love your neighbor. In Jesus, love became new. See, the standard was raised. That was new. But, you know, I think John and before him, Jesus was referring to something else, too, when he spoke about this old command being made new. John said in, in verse 8, Yet I am writing you a new commandment. Its truth is seen in him 
key phrase, and you. I think this new standard of loving my brother was new also because of who God said would be using to spread his love around. Not only was it a new command in that the old was raised to a new higher standard, but it was new and that it was now going to be fulfilled in a way that it had not been fulfilled, uh, been fulfilled before through followers of Jesus Christ. The kind of love that Jesus called his disciples to was only a dream before the coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell in their lives. Before he came, the disciples were pushing each other aside, trying to claim spots of eminence in Christ's coming kingdom. They were cowering in the shadows as Jesus, the person they professed undying love for hours before, was being taken away to die. Previously, they often thought the, the worst of each other. They didn't even trust each other's words a la Thomas, who wouldn't believe his fellow disciples' words when they swore that they had seen the risen Jesus. They were easily angered at others, too, especially when their precious egos got bruised, one time desiring to burn up an entire village of people because they had been slighted. <laughs> but afterwards, after the coming of the Spirit of God and His power, well, everything changed. Instead of claiming to be the greatest, they were devoting themselves to each other in loving acts. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44 said this, All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They were no longer fighting turf wars. They even sold their possessions, giving to the brothers who were in need. Churches in Macedonia, poor churches, giving to the even poorer church in Jerusalem, though they had never met or ever would meet on this earth. Peter's in prison. He's about to be executed. We find them on their knees, praying throughout the entire night, caring for each other, doing actively what was before just theory, displaying acts of love towards uh, another that was only words on a page or religious talk from a preacher before. See, the light of the Holy Spirit, which began like a single wooden match, was burning with increasing brightness. The darkness is passing, and the true light is already shining, John wrote. It was happening. It had begun. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, he said, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, two things I do know about the newness of this command. First, had a lot to do with the example of Christ raising the standard of what it all meant. Second, it had to do with how the new standard was going to be fulfilled, how it was going to be applied through you and through me. And that was really new. It was you and me by which the, you know, that Christ love was now going to be offered to the world. And when we begin to do that, when we begin to take the first small, halting steps towards loving the people in our church and in the larger body of Christ and in the world, then you can truthfully and properly claim, as verse 10 says, that you are living in the light. But listen, not before. But you know, not everybody lives at that address, the loving your neighbor address. Certainly not even everybody who populates the church. 
John, speaking to his Christian audience, says in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. What a sobering verse that is. Now, you know, there's, there's only been a few times in the years that I have been here at the Crossing Church that someone has said to me, I hate you, meaning me, or I hate that person. And whenever it's been said, the words came from a person whose mouth was kind of twisted in anger, their eyes were narrowed, their body language was tense and tight, and the feelings you could tell were coming from deep within them. But you know what? I don't think that John was primarily thinking of that kind of active hate when he wrote those words. The Bible, like any book, uses words in different ways. For instance, this word, hate. This same word is used in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. And it was Jesus who used it. This is what he said there. He said, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, nobody I know thinks that what Jesus was saying here was that you are not fit for his service until you actively hate those closest to you. You know, once you can no longer talk to your siblings, even in civil tones, then come back and you'll be ready to follow me. Nobody believes that. Jesus is using hyperbole. It's a figure of speech in which statements are purposely exaggerated. Sometimes they're exaggerated to evoke strong feelings or to create strong impressions. It's not meant to be taken literally. Someone says, I've heard that story a million times. You would have to be 500 years old to have heard anything a million times, right? People are lying when they use figures of speech. Jesus was merely trying to show that our love for him must go beyond even our love for those who we would say we love the most. The word hate is used in Malachi chapter 1 to show contrast. Sometimes words are used to bring out differences and contrast. It's there that God says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated, concerning the sons of Jacob. Now, did that mean that God in heaven saw these twins being born and said, oh, you know, that little red one, uh, I can't stand that one? No. We know that he meant Jacob, he chose to be in that line which would bless the whole earth, and Esau was not. One's in, one's out. Here's north, here's south. John is setting up a contrast in John chapter 2. He, he uses love and hate as opposites, stark contrasts, so people could look at them and see just where they fall in verses 9 and 10. You know, it's a funny thing about opposites when you think about it. Each lack lacks what defines their opposite. Black and white, short and tall, strong and weak. All are spoken as opposites, spoken of as opposites. But, but when you really think about it, while black is all the colors of the crayon box melted down together, white is the absence of color, lacks any color at all. You know, a short person is merely lacking height. He's merely lacking tallness. A, a weak person is lacking strength. Whenever you look at opposites, you will notice that one is lacking what the other has. Esau lacked being chosen by God. He was hated. 
All of that is to say that I think John was bringing out the fact that a hateful person is simply a person who lacks love. John is saying that a person who hates is one who is characterized by a lack of loving deeds towards his brothers and sisters. And they are literally walking in darkness, he said. And oftentimes that person is quite blind to how his or her lack is affecting every area of their entire life. They're stumbling through life because they're walking in the darkness. And so I guess then the opposite of that would also be true, right? That, that is, a, a person characterized by loving acts towards his sister or brother gives evidence of walking with God, gives evidence of walking in God's light. Love and hate, as used in John and in 1 John chapter 2, are terms used to determine whether a person is walking in the light of God or is stumbling around in the darkness, a darkness that could one day lead to destruction. What are the deeds of love? The Bible speaks in many instances of the deeds of love. One that has been recited many times, it's quoted at many marriage ceremonies, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So, a hateful person then would be one who lacks all those things, right? Someone who, who, who disregards the afflicted. Who shows, no, who shows contempt uh, for the welfare of those uh, who are young in the faith, who, who, when confronted by mistakes, their own mistakes, retaliates in anger. Someone who has a keen memory for the sins of others, not so much their own, but others, and who secretly finds delight when leaders fall. There are ones who can't bring themselves to rejoice with those whom God has blessed in some extraordinary way. Those who, in difficult times, well, they lose all hope. See, that's the opposite. Those who hate their brothers are folks like that. It's, it's, it's not even the upfront, active type of in-your-face type of hate. It's much more subtle. But like the active hater, the subtle hater who lives that way as a pattern of life should never deceive themselves into thinking that they are children of the light. Verse 11 says this, but... Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. It's like heading into the woods. That's your future. Heading in to the woods at midnight on a moonless night with dead batteries in your flashlight. See, our hatred has shuttered the moon and dulled the power which could give light. But when what was old becomes actively new in the life of a believer, well, then there's a strange effect that takes place. John says in verse 10 that whoever loves his brother lives in the light. Their whole life lights up. When I love my brother, when I'm 
doing loving acts towards others, all of life becomes clearer. All of life. Because why? Because I'm walking in the light. I can now see the path ahead of me and everything in your life will become clearer when the light is turned on. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Some people agree that the first part is important, you know, love the Lord your God, but they wonder if, and, and you know, if the second is, is quite as important as that. And yet Jesus seems to indicate that the two are sort of linked. Because when we love God, we will love our neighbor. And when we love our neighbor, it shows that we love God and that he is indeed working in us. John calls it walking in the light. It's proof that we love Jesus when we love those who he died for. It really is. It's proof that, that he is fitting us for our inheritance in the saints in heaven above one day. When we shut out our brothers and sisters, whether actively or passively, in effect, hating them, we have set up an environment where God cannot work. This is critical. This is so key to what John is saying. And he's saying when we do that, we, we are creating an environment where, where God can't get anything done in our lives, where we're stilted, we're stunted, our growth. It's like when I go to a public library. I used to go to a public library where we used to live uh, in Roseland. And uh, I would go there. Sometimes I'd park myself to get some work done, different setting. It was quiet. It was nice. It was a, it was a nice environment. And uh, so I used to go there every yeah, probably once a month or so. And then I kind of skipped for about a year. And I went back a, a year or a little bit more later. And when I went back, something had changed. Before, when you would hear, pe you would hear people occasionally whispering, you know, having little conversations. And if, if they whispered too long, I knew the librarian was going to come over and say, uh, hey, could you, could you take the conversation outside? Now, when I returned after a year or a year and a half absence, I was shocked when the first time two people began full-throated conversations without a trace of embarrassment or seeming thought, uh, you know, for those who were there to find a quiet place to study. I was shocked when, when that happened and nobody showed up. At first, I, I, I kind of, you know, I, you look at it, you get one of those little, you know, you know, stink guy kind of things. You know, you're looking at them and hope they catch you and you wait for the librarian to come and send them straight. But she never did. And she was 10 feet away. And she just stood there and said nothing. And then some other people started talking. The entire environment had changed. It literally had become hostile to studying. In the same way, when we hate our brothers and sisters, we have, in effect, set up a hostile environment where God's spirit cannot work and shine his light on our path for our life. Just can't happen. You know, we think the feud between us and our sister, well, it's just that. It's a, it's a family spat. Hey, every family has stuff going on, right? Guy at work, that guy has a demon seat. I'm not sure I'd throw him a flotation device if I saw him drowning. But here's the thing. If you have made peace with those situations, that is what it is. 
Okay, you've created an environment of darkness where God cannot do the good work in you that he so desperately wants to do. You are killing yourself. It may even mean, verse 4 says, that you don't even know him, God, at all. Verse 10 again. He said, whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. Okay, now turn that around. If you do not love your brother, then there indeed is something in you to make you stumble and fall and fail in life. Now, the word for stumble in that text is scandalon, which means a trap or, or a snare. It's used for bait on a stick or, or an obstruction in the road. Hate for our brother or sister works to sabotage my life. Now, the problem with many Christians today that are, that are wondering why their lives are marked by failure and falling is because they're trying to navigate about this life in the dark. They're, they live life like this. John chapter 11, same author, different book says this. He said, a man who walks a day, a, a man who walks by day will not stumble. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles for he has no light. It's as though he was blind. You know, we wonder why we always seem to be a day late and a dollar short in life. It may be that we have thrown down obstacles in our own path that we have created an environment where the light of God cannot break through, where we cannot hear his voice. God is silent when I speak to him, we say. Well, here's a question. Do you actively or passively hate someone in your life? If you do, if you are groping around in the darkness, here's the good news. Although the obstacles rarely appear overnight, they can begin to be dismantled rather quickly. And the first step in that dismantling is recognizing your active or passive hatred of someone else. You need to call it what it is, sin. Recognize what it's doing. It's causing you to walk in darkness. You know what? Name their name right, right now, right, right in your head. Maybe you even want to, if you're home and you're by yourself, you want to just kind of, you got to whisper it out loud. Who is it? Who stole away your job, your childhood, your spouse, your dreams? Pastor Tim, I don't hate her. In fact, I, I hardly ever think of that moron anymore. Who is it? You know, I was typing those, those words. I was typing those words this week, and immediately someone came to my mind in my own life who hurt me very deeply. If you can recall someone fairly easily, it's probably because they wounded you deeply. And the damage they did to you originally is nothing compared to the blessing that your active or passive hatred of them has stolen from you since the deed was done. You know, I remember reading about one nationally known Christian conference speaker whose typical audience consisted of Bible study leaders, vocational Christian workers, and just plain old church groups. And this speaker would regularly ask, uh, now how many of you would be honest enough to admit that there are one or more people in your life, past or present, that you have never forgiven? 
This person would ask this all the time. And by their testimony, every time they asked the question, between 80 and 95% of the hands in the room went up from an overwhelmingly Christian audience we're talking about now. Can you even admit that you have people in your life like that? Who is it? Are you willing to ask God to make you uncomfortable with the justifications that you have always held on to? Uh, with, with the peace you have made in yourself by simply forgetting that that person ever existed? Are, are you willing? Are you willing to even do that? You need to begin by recognizing who they are and naming the sin by which they wounded you and the hatred that you have harbored as a result. See, that is the first step. But listen, while recognition is good and it's a first step, it's not enough. You must also repent. You must change your mind about that person to turn away from active or passive hatred. To begin to ask God, even begin to ask God, to help you be willing to absorb the pain that they inflicted upon you knowingly, or a lot of cases, in ignorance. Look, whenever someone sins, someone has to pay a price for that sin. Forgiveness is when you choose to refuse to make another person pay for their sin against you, but instead you choose to absorb the debt yourself. You choose to bear the cost yourself. You choose to be a debt absorber instead of a debt collector. It's the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. Forgiveness, it's an easy word, but it's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's hard. It's costly. It's painful. And yet, we are never more like our Heavenly Father than when we engage in forgiveness. But if we ever decide to really mean it when we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. If we ever decide to choose forgiveness as a way of life, John says our entire lives will be different. Only God can give you the grace to do that. But are you willing to start absorbing their debt, little by little? If you do, the life you will be saving, John says, may be your own. John ends this section in verse 11 when he says this, But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. When we love people, we will walk in the light and not stumble in the night. It's a terrible thing when you're forced to navigate your life in the darkness. But the Bible says we don't have to. Jesus Christ entered the deepest darkness that any man has ever had to endure so that you would never have to. And when we humbly come to him and ask him to forgive us of our sins and to live his life in us, he will. He forgives you so that you in turn can forgive your brother. 
And when you do, he will shed his light on your path. And we all will begin to see. Are you ready to do that today? If you do, he'll hear your prayer. Father in heaven, for those who are listening right now, who have relationships that are really, really out of whack. Sometimes they know about it. It's on the front lobe of their brain. Other times they have deposited those terrible relationships and the hurt way back, way back in the recesses of their brains, oh God. But this morning, by your spirit, you've, you've kind of stirred it up, oh God. I pray that you would help them to make those first payments on forgiveness, that they would be willing to have you help them absorb the pain that uh, these pe people or persons have uh, inflicted upon them, oh God. And when they do, when they do, I know that you will begin to turn the lights on in every area of their life. We believe that. John certainly believed it, oh God. We don't want to work, walk in the darkness. We don't want to be blind and feeling our way around. We want to walk in the light in everything we do. So help us this day, oh God, to commit these relationships to you. Help us to truly love people as you love them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.